Hello and welcome to the Truth About Local Government podcast, a podcast aimed at providing a platform to promote the excellent work that the political members and officers of local authorities are doing to overcome the increasing challenges facing the communities across the UK. Additionally, we will be promoting the wider way of career opportunities that exist within local government. We hope this podcast will help drive engagement between the public and local authorities across the UK. Um, a really exciting guest for us today, Nick Lamb. Nick is, um, in my opinion, one of the the best uh or one of the most talented interim head of regenerations and development that I work with. Um, and so it was great to have him give up his time today to to talk to us about some really interesting topics. Um, Nick, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. How are you? Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, Matt. I'm, I'm very well. How are you? Yeah, well, I'm well. It's uh, kind of getting into the uh, the winter month. Well, it's not winter yet, is it? But the autumn, it's not stopped raining in Newcastle, I think, for about three days now. So uh, <laughs> the grass is loving it. Um so for those at home, Nick, it'd be really great to get a bit of a precursor and understanding as to your motivation for coming on the podcast, because I know off air that was something that we were keen to kind of uh, articulate at the start of this conversation. Yes, I think it's um, it, it's come out of having had a, a near 30 year career in the private sector, which, you know, from the point of view of skills and the sheer breadth of experience, it's given me understanding the dynamics of the, you know, the property, the real estate sector, its influences, its impacts and so on and so forth has been second to none but I think I don't know if everybody does it but I sort of came to realization that actually what you're doing it for could be put to far better use you know in the private sector it's very much about um, you know shareholder dividends or uh, I suppose making money for private companies whereas applying that trade in the public sector it's more shall we say for the greater good for one for better expression um, you know, how can you apply and enable authorities to achieve what they want to achieve through the skill sets that that I've got in, in the same way that, you know, you have professionals in social care and other areas of, you know, in terms of property, what can property professionals do to help councils deliver better services, improve the, the lot of their communities, you know, the people that live there, their businesses, their visitors, so on and so forth through effectively applying my skills to you know their assets how they do it how they go about regeneration how they go about development because regeneration is all about people and places not about short-term profit and actually regeneration is a long-term commitment um and if that view is not taken then it's, it's rarely going to be successful so i guess that's my motivation for looking at getting into the public sector particularly local government in order to do that, I think I recognise quite quickly that despite having sort of several years under my belt as a director in the private sector, that's a very different, um, shall we say, position to be in, in a local government context. In a local government context, you know, there is the political angle, there is there is governance, you're dealing with public money, it, it's got to be dealt with properly. Um, and you need to get experience of that. So my view was, I need to get I don't know, two, three years under my belt as an interim. Uh, to date, I've worked for four different authorities whose, uh, if you like, aims and objectives are not dissimilar, uh, subject to sort of geographical differences, if you like, and, and their specific issues they've got in each authority. But actually, the governance process and the objectives of that 
whilst they're the same, can be very different to different authorities. You know, their resources are a huge issue, or lack of, should I say, to be able to deliver what they want. You know, as, as a organisations, they are an amazing platform to deliver transformational change. You know, they've got the right motivation to do it. Have they got the right tools is, is the question. I guess I see issues there, and that's part of the challenge, is how you apply your knowledge and skills that you've gained, in my case in the private sector, to help look at what options are open to help them to deliver to deliver what they want, you know, that's best for the council, that isn't just going to necessarily asset strip them um, just to, for the sake of capital receipts, but is going to give them a long-term steady state income return to allow them to improve services, to have a bit more of a stable platform of income going forward. Um, and, you know, that will help them ride the issues that, that come up. I mean, I've worked in places where it's been ticking along nicely and, you know, organisations said, oh, we're shutting this and that and the other for lots of reasons. And, you know, these things pop up occasionally. You've got to be able to deal with that and, and ride those storms and, and react to it. So I guess that, that that sort of my view of how I can transfer or transition from public to private is through getting, as I said, maybe a few years worth of interim work at a particular level um, to help me with that appreciation. Um, uh, the last place I worked, you know, uh, one of my portfolio holders has uh, uh, offered, shall we say, to provide a, if you want to call it with a small p, a, a political reference, shall we say. So I, I feel like I'm getting there, if you like. Um, so, yeah, I'm currently continuing interim, but also open to permanent opportunities as well. Yeah, that, that's amazing. I guess it's one of the things for, for you know, well, I've seen at the last, I would say the last, particularly the last 15 months from yourself, Nick, is I think almost the, uh, the it's almost been a, a say a rebirth a galvanization it's kind of i think your energy and your passion i've seen kind of coming back into the work that you've been doing and it's it's just so wonderful to see because I, I agree with you you have a lot of these really talented professionals like yourself who you know you you go into the private sector or whatever you know different sector you're working in and you develop these skills but i think actually having the ability to truly have a positive impact those skills the skills being utilized to really benefit the community is just so absolutely satisfying and that work life not just what i've balanced but like the actual ability to walk away from a project and go i did that and this was the 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 the, the um the, the consequence i think it's fantastic i mean what what's been the hardest thing to get used to i think by and large as an officer you're dealing with you know a group of elected individuals from a variety of backgrounds, a variety of professionals and all sorts, they're not always necessarily property professionals or legal professionals or whatever area they're trying to make decisions in. So I guess as a uh, at an officer level, as a professional in a certain field, you know, our job or my job is to look at what they're trying to achieve and consider ways of how it can be achieved and put options on the table with recommendations I mean, that that's the basic job of an officer isn't it and give advice and give it forcibly if necessary it's entirely their prerogative to determine which uh, route to take if you like and i guess and and this is something i've been learning over over the years i've now been doing the interim work it's it's having that ability to go from being in an environment where I was talking to individuals who understood the sector to those perhaps where they're not and being able to disseminate that information in 
I don't want this to sound derogatory, but more layman type terms, understandable terms that I can get the point across and say, you've got to do this because, or we recommend you do this because, rather than, you know, perhaps coming from the point of view of thinking they understand the reasons behind the choices that have been made. So I, I think that can be quite difficult. And and sometimes decisions are often made from a, you know, for reasons some officers will never necessarily be aware of, but they're the elected representatives, that's democracy. We get on with it, if you like. And I suppose that's, is it difficult or is it just understanding the dynamics and the different environment you're working in? I think that's where I'm getting to. I think initially it felt quite frustrating, but actually it's part of the process. It's, yeah, it's, the it's, way it's an active decision up. to work in a political environment, isn't it? Yeah, and, uh, you absolutely. Know, and, and embracing that democracy. And I completely agree with you. I think when you look at the people that really perform at, at your level uh, and above in leadership capacity, communication is so critical because not absolutely. everybody can be an expert in every part, but it's being able to provide the important information in a way that you don't, you're patronising somebody, but equally you don't want to say it in a way in which they, you're alienating them by not you know, making sure that they understand it. One thing we've talked about, and it's something you're very passionate about, is the role of property and assets in enabling the delivery of better services. Can you give us a bit of context as to what you mean by that? Um, I think so. And I can only speak from the experience of the authorities I've worked at, where they have a variety of assets, you know, some whether they're built assets, whether they're land assets. And actually understanding what the function of those assets are some are operational, some are non-operational. And it's about, I guess, first of all, how can you be as efficient as you can be as an organisation? Uh, and what are your requirements in, in terms of premises that you need to occupy for whatever reason it is? And it depends on the authorities, whether you're the LEA or not. And that depends whether you're an MBC or just a, or whether you've got a two-tier um, region that you're in. But it could extend to schools or it could extend to civic premises or entertainment premises, event premises, so on and so forth. So it's about categorising those and understanding what your needs are. Are they being looked after? Are they fit for purpose? So there's the very basic sort of regulatory stuff and, and, and safety stuff that you've got to, to consider. But actually, are we spending more money than we need to? You know, part of the premise of the government property department or property agency and, and the one public estate, it, is about now at least looking at how we can make our buildings more efficient by having different but complementary or symbiotic services within each of those buildings if you like um, which could ultimately free up other buildings or free up other land for different uses whatever it happens to be and I suppose what I've experienced in most places I've worked at the immediate kind of thought that seems to come out is oh well let's let's sell them and then get some money and you think well let's think about that could I commercialize it and generate an income from it and pass some of the risk of holding that property and looking after it to another is there a I suppose more beneficial use it could be put to for the community so should we look at whether there's a suitable candidate for a community asset transfer? And it, you know, and this is where 
your relationship and links with other service areas comes in, you know, your linkages with your cultural team, cultural events team, cultural programming team, your linkages with your children's services, your adult services and these other services to understand what their needs are. So rather working in silos, it's about having, if you like, cross service line understanding of what the needs are. Um, you know, are we aware of third organisations that might have a need? that this premises could fulfil because what's value to an authority is not always pound notes or just total income. It could be social value and it's about can we deliver social value as well through through that those mechanisms. And that's what I think is quite exciting about this kind of work versus private practice work, if you like. You're actually thinking about how you can improve, you know, the environment, the, uh, the communities and the neighbourhoods you live in. Um, so I suppose it's how you look at assets and the, I, I get the impression some of the places I worked at it's quite a black and white view you know everyone's a property expert um, but what are the alternatives and again I see that as the job you know what they ultimately decide to do is entirely up to the decision making and governance process that, that, that sits in place but it's incumbent upon you know officers of any uh, profession in whatever they do in the local authorities to consider those options and put them forward, you know, with, with recommendations, which is kind of what we're coming back to. But it's about utilising those assets to best effect for the authority. Uh, you know, when you come to operational properties, you know, I, there's one particular site I can think of. It was a huge depot sat on, I forget now, seven or eight acres. You think, well, how does this operation work? So you get in and talk to people and understand how it works. You say, well, could it work better if it was configured differently and so on and so forth or your access was different because it comes in from a more commercial side of the environment rather than a residential street for example which in this particular case it did and actually do I need that much space if I don't need that much space could I put the balance of the site that's not necessarily needed if it had a more efficient setup to a better use could I generate income from could I create or, or have a eliminate some of the homelessness or social housing need I've got or uh, people in temporary accommodation by partnering with you know whether it's RPs or whether you know an organization's got its own housing company which some do to actually deliver something which a provides a need you know it's free land because it's yours um, which eliminates a lot of the major cost of these things but actually gives you a long-term interest in the site and, and, and revenue so you sort of mix it up a bit do you want private rent on there a bit of open market sale to mix in a little bit just to balance the books because we don't need to make 20 25 percent like the market does as long as it washes its face and there's a business case for it and it delivers some need that's really all the local authority has to do necessarily in most cases so this is what I mean, it's about really looking at your assets and getting under the skin and having a real sort of asset management strategy that looks at everything from sort of long term stewardship and maintenance, if you like, and the, and the cost of that, you know, in, today, top of the agenda is climate change, as well as building safety, if you like. So a lot of authorities are saddled with old buildings, you know, there's also a lot of nostalgia attached in many cases to some of these old buildings, especially when they're sort of town halls. But then there's the reality, isn't there? It's actually, yeah, I love this building. I want to keep it and use it. So what can we do to make it more efficient and better? 
and what's the cost of doing that and what's the the long you know the lifetime cost let's say over 30 years of doing that to a building that's old versus having a new more modern space with, with spaces that are more flexible than perhaps Victorian buildings uh, that's sort of built from a fabric first perspective that's more efficient and if you look at the two and I did an exercise in one authority where probably unfortunate for some people the new build option which automatically think well that's expensive because I've got to build it actually worked out over a period of, period of about 30 years to be considerably less expensive in the tune of several millions than, than it was to retrofit an old building, keep it and, and, and then maintain it. But that's just an option, isn't it? And it's putting these things in front of people so they're aware of what, what they're thinking, you know, and how does that fit into the wider policies, your corporate plan, your corporate policies, your strategic um, policies in terms of climate change and so on and so forth. So. And that's going back to it, that's what makes this exciting and interesting and a challenge, if you like, from from a I suppose a property professional's perspective. Absolutely, it's it's that efficiency. So actually, really looking at a portfolio and saying to yourself, you know, are we doing this in the best way possible for the people and the, for the community? And that's why it's so exciting to get people like yourself, Nick, into the public sector to drive that. You know, one question I have is procurement, governance, and politics. Does that get in the way of regeneration? Do you think? Honestly, I think it can. And I think, you know, governance is absolutely essential. I think streamlined governance could be implemented better in some of the authorities of that, shall we say. Um, but that, again, is a political decision as to how they administer that governance process, how they set it up and what they do and, and basically work with what's in front of you. But it can get in the way where things are time critical and time critical things can be uh, the application and delivery of funding that you might have secured. Um, it could be just timing in relation to keeping a quota alive that you've had, say, for building costs, for example, or something like that. If, if it takes more than a few weeks to get the decision you need, um, in instances like that, it, it, it can have an adverse impact. Um, if you look at the private sector in terms of uh, you know, developers and builders and that sort of thing. They're busy people. They want to keep a, a busy order book and a price they give you one day and a time slot they give you one day. If you don't respond in a timely manner, might disappear because they say, well, okay, I haven't got that yet. It, it, they need certainty and they might go and fill that slot with another job that is more certain. So again, it's just being aware of what impact these things taking too long can have. Um, that's not to say you should rush the decision making process, far from it, in, certainly in terms of regeneration or any kind of large scale development that local authorities are involved with. Getting the foundations right, getting the process right, getting what you need as an authority out of a development in terms of the planning permission you get, the conditions that are attached to it, what's in the 106, the social value you want to get out of it, the terms of any development agreement. That's more important to me than rushing it. I'd far rather spend an extra three to six months getting that right than rushing a decision and paying for it for the next 15 years. So, and sometimes that can be frustrating as well, because once the decisions have been made, sometimes I like to get on with it, don't they? So there is a balance here. Um, uh, and to be honest, that scenario is no different in the private sector. You know, I've worked with a lot of clients. Oh, I need to get on. I need to do this. I need to do that. And a lot of the time saying, OK, I understand that, but let's get this right, because if we don't, there'll be consequences, you know, and it, it's just having that sort of foresight and ability to understand 
what needs doing, how it fits together, what order it needs doing to and, and getting to a point where you're ready to go. That's not saying all, all the balls have got to fall down at the same time because if you waited for that, you'd never do anything. So, um, by the same, it, it's that balance and it's having that knowledge and experience of how to do it and, and how to advise accordingly and get your point across. I think so. How do you balance. how do you measure social value? You talked about social value there in terms of regeneration about people and places and and really bringing. You know, so those are the homes. Section 106 is where there is a contribution from a developer, and that money is. Am I right with that, Nick? Is that is that a fair? Uh, yes, it could be an, uh, a contribution or an obligation to do something, deliver something, whether it's a school or a leisure centre or open space, whatever it is, or a contribution towards. Um, and it's usually sat next to a trigger in the development. So you know, you've got to provide this before. I don't know the occupation of a. 100th unit, for example, or the 200th unit, or whatever it is. So there's all that to work. There are conditions in there that make sure that, or especially if you look at a large strategic site, that the council gets the information it needs before it starts considering detailed applications for the smaller parts of the site, shall we say. Um, so they've got it right, you know, they understand what's going to be delivered, how it's going to be delivered, what the governance and stewardship structures are going to be long term, so on and so forth. So there's a whole raft of things like that to convince them or give them the comfort that they've got what they need. What was the so, other first uh, the question really was about how do we monitor and measure oh, monitor that social value? Uh, social value is really interesting. Again, it's something prior to, to working in local government. I'll, I'll be honest, I never really understood it. <laughs> it. It was always, well, how much are you going to give? And you, you, you know, you, you talk about a percentage of the value of the contract sometimes. But actually, when you start looking at it, I think there's a huge opportunity here for authorities to be very particular about what they want. You know, they know what their needs are. They know what, for example, education issues are. They know what skill shortages they've got. Uh, you know, they, they know if, I don't know, a part's getting tired and they can't afford to do it, but this people on a development might be using that part so they can get. And it's about being specific and about what you want. What we seem to have at the moment is there are organisations out there that purport to deliver social value for organisations and they have authorities and other organisations on, on their books, so to speak. But when you drill down into it, do they monitor it? Do they pick up the phone to these organisations that have got contracts where social value agreements have been written and said, actually, have you delivered against all of the headings in your social value thing? And they don't do that, which is a bit odd. But you look at a headline, and uh, I, I remember sitting down with a colleague not so long ago, and we, we randomly picked, um, I think, an organisation that won a contract. I forget who it was or who they were working for. And I think the value of it was something like three or four thousand, th sorry, three or four million as a, as a contract. And in the box next to it on the headline, it said, 80%, i.e. they delivered 80% of their social value commitment. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? So you're then able to dive, do a bit more of a deep dive into, into the figures. And literally what you see are a list of boxes, which are the various headings under which um, social value was meant to be delivered. And every single one of these boxes was zero except for one. And that was people they employed locally. And that's where the 80% came on. So every single one of their employees, I think bar two, worked within the borough that this contract was delivered in. 
Well, they did that anyway. That's not adding anything. And yet you look at the headline and it said 80%. Whereas you looked against sort of the training initiatives and other initiatives that were in there as well, they all said zero. So when you look at the statistics, and that was quite an eye opener. You know, I would have looked at the stats, and had I not been with this colleague, I said, "Well, hang on a minute. Let, let let's see what that looks like." And then he realised, "Well, actually, no." So, you know, I've recently been trying to negotiate a development agreement and thinking about what social value we needed to put into that. Um, so, what I then started to do was to talk to people within the authority in different service lines, offering different services. What do you need? What do you want? So we could almost get a wish list to, to look at what would be a reasonable ask of a um, partner, a development partner from a social value perspective, but actually be very specific about it. So I, I think there's an opportunity there to both, first of all, be specific about what you're asked for, but also be able to monitor it. Well, it is. is you've got these private sector organisations, and it's not a criticism of the private sector, but any organisation where there is a uh, a discretion, uh, you know, levied against <laughs> how they do something that maybe is not driven by profit, they may not do it. Um, so you you need to look at that. And and yeah. again, going back to money on this, I mean, the funding system at the moment on regeneration has 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 kind of drawn a lot of criticism um, at, at points uh, as to how it's allocated. Um, and the time pressure with which, you know, one has to spend funds that are awarded by central government. How challenging is funding uh, within regeneration at the moment? I think there are a lot of funding initiatives and a lot of, shall we call them, pops that you can apply for, depending on the circumstance of a particular scheme. So I think certainly the availability of potential funding is, is there. I think, in my experience at least, albeit relatively short-lived, the time frame within which it is required to be spent seems to be set by the Treasury, which my guess is that it's set by a political agenda as much as anything else. And I think you almost need to take that out of it. You know, if a government allocates funds to do something, I'm not saying it shouldn't be unrealistic, it should be realistic, but the spend period, you know, you're not going to deliver a hundred million pound project um, when you're given funding in i'm just thinking back now 2020 or 2021 and say actually you've got to spend all of that within six years or something when it actually was meant to be delivering a much larger scheme and the purpose for the money was for infrastructure which isn't it isn't appropriate to put all that infrastructure in day one before you start you know it, it's an iterative process putting infrastructure in um and it needs to be looked at holistically so what you end up with is trying to a manipulate the bid to fit the criteria and then work to milestones that you could argue you created yourself because you've had to manipulate the bid in the first place just to make it fit and then spend a lot of time with your monetary court sort of explaining why you haven't done something and then try to change it often unsuccessfully because again it's not that flexible um so I think it, 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 it's about understanding if I'm going to have money for infrastructure of a considerable amount for a scheme that's going to take 20 to 30 years to build, there's got to be an expectation that that can't be spent in six years. It, it, a lot of it will be spent. Up but, front, but nor should it, though, Nick, because this no. is the, I think for everyone listening at home, the problem mm. you've got essentially is councils will go to bid for these pots of money 
And the central government have said, if you don't spend it, you you, you run the risk of losing it, or having to pay back the entire sum. And the, the, the overriding argument for this is if you try and put time pressure on schemes that do not shouldn't naturally be completed in that time and all the funding to be spent in that time you run the risk of jeopardizing the quality of what's being delivered Absolutely. so fundamentally therefore you're risking the ability to to get true value at public purse and to make that scheme the best that it could be and you i think that's the frustrating thing isn't it so you know in an ideal world we're not in that um and whilst it's frustrating you do spend some of the money, so you do get somewhere sometimes, albeit the funding stream can get cut off. They say, right, you know, you haven't delivered it by, you know, March of this year, then that's it. We're withholding the rest of it. And then it's a, a bit of a negotiation as to whether you have to pay back what you've already spent or not, depending, you know, how far forward that's gone and what it's contributed to it. Um, and that's no real fault of the organisations that deliver and administer this funding. It's more about the constraints that they work within, which I'm assuming come down from the Treasury or other departments in central government. So, which is why my assumption was that it's it's a politically led. Oh, it certainly is. Time, I mean, I, I, won't, I won't say in which city it is, but I know for a fact that there was significant pressure levied against one of the directors of regeneration that they had to have buildings coming out of the grounds because it, it, that would have... Uh, fed into an election cycle and mm. look it, you know, none of us need to be naive here obviously politicians want to be able to justify and to point to what they've led to a city in development sometimes there can be it can appear nothing's happening for a long time and suddenly a building's come out of the ground and you know it, it's there but i guess it's just politicians not using it as a political football um you know to be kicked around but more as both parties and i think that's the thing that for me nick which is quite encouraging is that a lot of local government politicians not national, aren't really bothered about which political party they sit in. It's more about delivering for the people. Mm. Uh, it just feels sometimes that the central politics that comes into it, it can... can... It, it, it can, politically, I'm, I'm completely agnostic, really. You know, as you said, it, it is about trying to do the best you can for, you know, the, the area, the administrative area that you're working with. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of improvement in that with the... Um, Greater Manchester Authority, the West Midlands Authority, there's the new East Midlands going, there's, there's a Liverpool um, city region where we've got these overarching organisations that are starting to be able to channel these funds out to the authorities in the area from central government, which, mm. you know, one of the biggest wastes I think I've seen recently was I think the Love 2 round, uh, yep. letting up funding. The criteria changed, I think, about halfway through the bid, you know, the, the submission process, partly because of the popularity of it, as I understand, and there was that much coming in. And I think a missive came out, as I understand it, saying, well, actually, if you were successful in round one, you're probably not going to be successful in round two. Well, if that had been the criteria at day one, far fewer authorities would have spent time, effort and money putting a bid together. And, you know, that is a real waste, if I'm honest. And just... I know how much time, effort and money it costs to put these bids together. Um, so, yeah, that it, it, it's just eliminating things like that. You know, let's think about stuff before we do it. Um, and it's one of those, those things, isn't it? It's, it's a size and scale of it. You yeah. know, because, you know, it, with these funding, just to kind of context, for it, we're talking millions of pounds, guys. You Absolutely. know, not necessarily on the spend of getting the bid together, but there is so much money goes into it. Um, 
Well, one thing I want to talk to you about, Nick, and, and I think it's useful to give a platform to this, is sometimes the tricky nature of going, particularly into leadership roles, when you didn't come, you know, go man and boy, uh, you know, boy and man through, through the system, the local government system, as it were, and and the challenges that kind of existed within that. How hard is it? Because, I mean, how have you found it making that transition? Because I know your aspiration is to be in a permanent public sector position. Um, what's that experience been like for you? It's been a real education in many respects because dare I say it I think in the private sector generally there is a perception about the way local authorities work and maybe the attitude and motivations of, of people that work with it which is entirely wrong I hasten to add um, what I found is that there are a lot of dedicated motivated and talented people working there but they're working in an environment that is extremely challenging particularly from a resource perspective um, and I think a lot of authorities struggle to bring on board the sort of skill sets they need in some areas um, because of the constraints of the system and, and, and it is what it is and, and, and they've had to live with that. Um, some authorities have worked around that by creating uh, a, a series of wholly owned subsidiaries to deliver certain um, functions and services, if you like, where they're able to employ people on a more, um, shall we say, private sector basis and get the right sort of skill sets. In. But it, I think that is that is a key challenge. You know, is I don't know, is is a lawyer with thirty years' experience worth the same as you know another profession of thirty years' experience? Well, in the public sector, it is. That might not be the case in the private sector. You know, they all have the value in in the market, as it were. Um, so I think that's you know that's not going to change. That that is what it is. So the challenge is how do we get in those people that we need? And I think the short answer is grow your own. You know, I'm a great believer in trying to pick people that you think have got potential and working with them. Um, putting strategies in place to help help educate them if that's needed, give them the experience they need. Um, I'm a great advocate in getting rid of silos, working together. You know, if you've got a project to do, let's get the right people in to do it with the right skill sets. I might not need them at every meeting, but I need them on the team, if you like, that you can pull them in as and when you need them. Um, you know, let's get them out, let's give them some training. Um, first local authority I went into, I reorganised the sort of asset management and FM department. There was a lot of talent in there. There were some people that were quite well educated, but not necessarily in that field, but had an aspiration to do it. One chap I got onto a, a university course uh, to help him out um, and uh, was the mentor for him on, on that one. Another person I put on a project management course and again I think it's horses for courses for things like project management because everyone thinks of prints too don't they but this was a specific function that needed to be performed within a property department so we went down the um, APM route which was more focused in on property management shall we say um, whereas prints two is more of a how shall I put it generic sort of management thing and it, it's very good and it's very disciplined but once we talked through it and, and, and discussed it with people at APM and at Prince2, the decision was that we did that. So it's about working with people. 
getting the best out of them that you can because if you can bring them with you you can grow your own it, it, it brings loyalty for a start off they learn what they want there you've got a happier workforce on and so forth so i think all of that for me um was i suppose it gave me i don't know a sense of achievement and it, it wasn't something i was able to do to that extent in in the private sector if you like um so it's it, again it's about what's the issue what's the challenge how do i deal with it what can i do to make it better within the constraints i'm working with if you like and you know we can moan about the constraints but that's not very productive is it it's about okay i know what my parameters are that i'm working within how do i how do i achieve what i want to achieve within that framework if you like and it's just thinking about different ways of doing things isn't it so i think yeah growing your own bringing people through understanding you know why people are what their motivations are what their aspirations are so on and so forth and, and picking what their strengths are you know finding out what they want to improve or they might not want to and they're happy doing what they're doing but it's just understanding who you're working with and how best to put that team together to get the most out of it i suppose and, and that's you know that that is a challenge within i guess local government generally because and there's another playing field there isn't you've got upper tier and lower tier and everything in the middle in terms of local authorities so they're not necessarily getting if you like uh, equitable funding on an annual basis and some do better than others so you get this disparity across the country of i don't know as you alluded to i've, I've been looking for permanent positions and i've seen positions that let's say assistant director level range everything from well i think there's been something like a £30,000 difference in what's been offered for the same position across the country, depending on which authority it's in. So again, those people... It's all relative, really, isn't it, based on the size and spend of the council? And it it is, of... but it means they're always going to attract potentially the better talent. Mm. And, and it kind of leaves others behind. So I don't know how that is addressed, but um, it, it does cause issues for some people that have got perfectly good ambitions you know their ambitions are no less important than somebody at a higher level if you like you know their residents their businesses their visitors are just as important as everybody else's you know but um yeah so i suppose there are those inequalities that you do pick up as, as you go through this absolutely well nick look it's been fantastic talking to you today uh, i've really My enjoyed pleasure. it thank you for coming on thank you for inviting me much appreciated you've been listening to nick lamb um as I said at the start of the episode, very talented regeneration leader um, working in the public sector now. So, Nick, thank you for your service. Thank you for your time. And um, for, you, the, for those at home listening today, please give it a like, give it a share, all the normal good stuff. And uh, I look forward to bringing you some very interesting episodes later on in the week. Stay safe. You have been listening to the Truth About Local Government podcast. Remember, your local council does some amazing work but you can help. So remember to vote and be engaged with the work they're doing. If you like this podcast, please like, share, and give a five-star review. If you would like to feature on the podcast, have any shout-out of excellent work being done by a local authority, or have any topics you would like covered, please email me at truthaboutlocalgovernment at gmail.com. Truth About Local Government. Local Government is at the heart of what we do.